And we are recording with the one and only Mr. Ray McGovern, who you sent me, I sent you uh, an email the other day. You just popped it in my head. <clears throat> and you uh, you said you were waiting to hear back from the Pope. And I was like, what? What? And uh, so I, I think I just said, I was like, you got to enlighten me. Like, wait, 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 what? I think I actually Googled you. I was like, Ray McGovern Pope. <laughs> I was like, has something happened that I need to be aware of? And uh, you had actually posted a video um, directed towards the Pope. But so I don't butcher it. I would like to have you describe that. And for all of the new listeners, because it's been uh, a couple months since you've been on, could you please tell them a little about yourself and your history with the Central Intelligence Agency? Sure. Well, I'm Ray McGovern. I worked for the CIA for 27 years. I worked as an analyst. I didn't overthrow any governments. They never asked me to. I didn't torture anyone. They never asked me to. We didn't do those things. Uh, I'm out now for about 30 years. Um, my work was uh, Soviet analysis, and uh, I'm proud to be able to say that the reason that uh, Truman set up the CIA was not to overthrow governments, but to have an analyst outfit that would report to him, report to him directly, not to the Pentagon. The yeah, Pentagon always telling Truman that uh, the Russians were 10 feet tall, not mm -hmm. the State Department always defending their policy, but directly to him, being responsible, being accountable to him. And that was big, that was heavy duty because what Truman wanted, and this is of course, Truman was before my time, but what the CIA has really asked for is unvarnished intelligence. Uh, Truman put it this way, he said, untreated intelligence. Untreated. Can you hear that, Tommy? I can. Yeah. Sorry about that. I'll mute, I'll mute it. Okay. I'll mute it. So, so what, what, uh, it's okay. It's gone. It's gone. All right. We're good. We're good. The reason that, uh, Truman, uh, wanted a independent intelligence service reporting directly to him is because he had seen what had happened uh, during World War II and they were all sort of competing agencies and competing intelligence services. He wanted to consolidate into one central intelligence agency uh, where he could look to one agency to collect all the information the others had and repeat uh, report to him with, with uh, what he called untreated. So unvarnished intelligence. Now, if you're a if, if you're a president of the United States, I mean, wouldn't you really like to have one place to go or there one would be no, no agenda like, you know? Well, it's hard to believe in Washington, you tell somebody that you worked for a place that had no political agenda. <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> it's inconceivable. Well, it was conceivable. It was conceived by Truman. And we were able, at least in the Soviet area, we were able to do that for almost my entire tenure because the Soviet Union was the biggest target. Now, toward the end, it got a little bit afraid at the edges because Bill Casey and and Bobby Gates uh, thought that, well, uh, the Russians would never relinquish power, that the Communist Party for the Soviet Union was there forever, and that the, the Russians are just a bunch of dirty commies, right? So 
they didn't recognize the the change that Gorbachev introduced. But luckily, there were enough of us around that were able to get that clear message to policymakers. This is the real deal, deal already. So now the reason I mention that is that most people think about the CIA in terms of running spies and overthrowing governments. Uh, there are really two CIAs. There is that half or there is that other agency where I worked was the first one. Now, I've been very much involved in, in looking at what the Russians are doing in Ukraine and why they're in Ukraine. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a long story, but let me just say that the, the, the accusation that the Russian invasion of Ukraine was unprovoked is just not, is not just that true, okay? Um, long story short, uh, after the Soviet Union was falling apart, Gorbachev was promised by the Secretary of State to George H.W. Bush that if he accepted a reunited Germany, okay, now bear in mind, um, the Russians lost 26 million people to a united Germany, like, <laughs> yeah. All right, okay. So here's Gorbachev and his foreign minister, Shepard Nazi, and they're being asked to accept a reunited Germany. You know, truth be told, McGovern didn't want a reunited Germany. Yeah. Uh, I, maybe I saw too many war films when I was a little kid. But, you know, the whole idea of NATO, uh, as was said by its first secretary general, out, out, out loud, was to keep the, the U.S. against the Soviet Union. Yeah, well, to keep the U.S. in Europe, yeah. keep the out of Europe, and to keep Germany down. Yeah, Germany divided so they wouldn't do what they did in the second. De Defang them. Yeah. Well, let's just kind of put it in context. Here comes this fancy Texas lawyer, James Baker, and he says, hey, uh, we want a reunited Germany. Now, when the shock wore off, Gorbachev said, well, I mean, that's a big quid. That's a real, real sour pill to, to swallow. Oh, a real big asterisk. Whoa, you know, what do we get for this? So Baker said, and I know this because Jack Macklock, good friend of mine, he was the ambassador. He was there. He said, "Well, Baker, well, how would it be? How would it be if we if we told you that we wouldn't move NATO one inch to the east? How would that be?" Well, they thought it over. Came back the next day. Said, "All right, uh, you promise? Uh, cross my heart. Hope to die." Said Jim Baker. He never put it down in writing. Lawyers put everything in writing. It was kind of a tricky Texas move, okay? So what happens? Well, George H.W. Bush keeps his promise. Um, Bill Clinton doesn't, reneges, in other words. Uh, so uh, NATO doubles in size within the next decade or so. Was 16, I think, when the promise was made, becomes 30, okay? And then in 2008, um, there was a lot of talk about Ukraine joining NATO. And uh, what happened was uh, uh, Lavrov, the 
Soviet foreign minister then, and now he's a Russian. No, he's a Russian foreign minister then too. Uh, he called our ambassador, who happens to be Bill Burns, now head of the CIA. He said, Mr. Burns, do you know what net means? <laughs> I told him, yeah, of course, no. He says, yeah, well, net means net. There's a red line we draw, no admission of Ukraine into NATO. Otherwise, there will be civil war and we will have to think about intervening. Tell your people that. Net means net. Again, uh, Burns played it straight. He not only, the title of his cable back was Net means net, Russia's red line on NATO expansion. Well, you know, then he talked about what <laughs> what Lavrov had said. And then, to his credit, ambassadors don't overdo this. But he said, you know, the, the Russians have strategic concerns there. They have, you know, it's right up on their border. And, you know, they're entitled to have their strategic <laughs> concerns, you know. Well, what happened was, that was the 1st of February 2008, what happened was that Condoleezza Rice went to Dick Cheney, who was ruling the roost. Dick, what about this? And he said, "No, yet <laughs> we we're gonna we're gonna accept. Uh, we're gonna say at the next NATO conference that Ukraine and Georgia, the country of Georgia, uh, should become parts of NATO." And sure enough, two months later, April third, two thousand and eight, uh, the NATO declaration at a summit in Bucharest said Ukraine. And uh, and Georgia will become members of NATO. Now, the is, uh, is Ossetia Georgia? Sorry to interrupt. Pardon? Is Ossetia is that Georgia? Uh, this South Ossetian part of uh, well, the, the Russians had sort of uh, been been monitoring a ceasefire in South Ossetia, and uh, the Georgians thought they get into their head to shoot up some Russians. They did. They got a real bloody nose. Russian troops coming through those tunnels went all the way to Tbilisi, stopped before Tbilisi. So there was, the, I'm glad you mentioned that. So there was a, a concrete set of circumstances where the Russians proved that yet means yet. And that was early August, 2008. So what we have here, April, April, May, June, July, five months later, the Georgians try that and the Russians react, give them a real bloody nose. So. Then there's a, a coup in Kiev. You know, who, who who arranged the coup? We did. The home team. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Now, it's been described as the most blatant coup in history. And I don't know of any other more blatant coup. Why? Well, because it was advertised two and a half weeks before the coup on YouTube. <laughs> and it's all the like of it. Yeah. Uh, Victoria Nuland, our Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, and the U.S. Ambassador in Kiev were talking about who they would place in as the Prime Minister, who they had who they had put on the sidelines because he was obviously a Nazi or an extreme rightist. They had it all set up. And, and then uh, <laughs> the Ambassador, interesting, the Ambassador says, uh, you know, I'm a little concerned about what the EU might think of this. <laughs> Victoria Nolan says, F, you know the rest of that word, F the EU. 
Now, she had to apologize for that uh, a couple of days after it was held on YouTube. It was a legitimate, I mean, legitimate. It was a cool plotting, but authentic uh, intercept. So we know that it was authentic because she apologized for it. Of course, we, well, and anyway, that was on, that was on February 4th, 2014. Yeah. Now, I remember, I remember it, watching it with my older brother. So McGovern says, wow, isn't that interesting? They're planning this coup and it gets blown. That's the word we use in intelligence. You blow it, right? Okay. It's blown. It's not going to happen. Now, I guess I wasn't alone because uh, uh, Putin was at the Winter Olympics in Sochi. Sochi, yeah. And he, uh, he apparently had the same reaction. Whew. <laughs> he's, he's, these guys tried to cool him. It's blown now because he stayed there in Sochi. And the coup happened on the 22nd of February, 2014. He came back on the 23rd of February, 2014, got his people together and said, what are we going to do about this? You know, it was a pure surprise. Now, the pundits will tell you that Putin had in the back of his mind seizing Crimea for, well, for decades. Well, there's not a scintilla of evidence that it ever entered into Putin's mind to seize Crimea until Ukraine decided to become parts of NATO and NATO or the US primarily started a coup in Kiev. So when, when uh, Crimea was uh, annexed to Russia, uh, Putin made a very important speech. Not many people read his speeches anymore. They just listen to the talking heads on TV. But what he said was this. He said, you know, this was a this was a, a month after the, the annexation, the plebiscite, then the annexation of uh, Crimea. He said, it was very, very important that we uh, take Crimea back, not only uh, to prevent uh, the NATO encroachment there, uh, but even more important, his words, more important to prevent medium range ballistic missiles from going into Crimea. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Well, there are holes, there are capsules already in Romania, almost completed in Poland that can accommodate cruise missiles or when the US gets them, hypersonic missiles. How much warning time does that give Putin like when, when a missile goes off? Four to eight minutes. Right. Well, five to seven is what Oof. he said a year ago. Maybe it's eight now. Okay. So um, you, you want to be in a position having to, dis, having to decide whether you're going to Run to your head at all times. Yeah. Yeah. So anyhow, it, people now people listening to your show, Tommy, may know that, but... Uh, uh, it's not in the New York Times. So what I'm saying here is that Bill Burns was right in saying in his ambassador comments that the Russians are entitled to have strategic concerns in their backyard, you know? And what I compare it to is the situation we faced in 1962, before you were born, Tommy, uh, in Cuba. Now, there's a direct analogy there. And I think it might help people to, to understand uh, what happened. Well, uh, in early 1962, uh, Khrushchev 
was the head of Russia, and he and his people decided, well, let's let's try to put offensive strike missiles in Cuba. That would give us a leg up. We'd have an advantage then because, you know, it won't be just ICBMs. We'll have five to seven minutes warning time and we'll give them the rockets. So they did. They put in uh, medium-range ballistic missiles, short-range ballistic missiles in Cuba. Now, we didn't know it at the time, but I'll tell you a secret. They were armed. And the field officers were given permission to fire on their own. So <laughs> we didn't were, know that for decades. We didn't know that at the time. We found that out later. <laughs> but uh, they were ready to go, okay? Uh, and their range would permit them to hit Washington, D.C., Omaha, Nebraska, where our strategic air mm -hmm. command off it in minutes, okay? So here's John Kennedy. John Kennedy, guy who got me down to Washington when he asked, you know, us, us that had some special qualifications. Mine was Russian studies, uh, not to ask what the country could do for us, but how we might be able to do something for the country. That may sound corny now, but I just want to tell you, it wasn't corny then. Okay, I love it. I still love it. And the Russians, you know, the Russians were a real threat. I mean, look, five to seven minutes or whatever it was in those days. So Kennedy rose to the occasion. He says, Yet, <laughs> yes, means <laughs> withdraw the missiles. And he did illegal things like embargo around mm -hmm. Cuba, okay. yeah. uh, preparing to invade Cuba. It was, he was dead serious, okay? And his uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff were chomping at the bit because they thought, you know, uh, we could go after Russia on this and we'd only lose about no, no, $20 million. In the exchange, acceptable <laughs> losses. Is it crazy? And of course, they were. Yeah. Anyway, long story short, they worked it out, right? How'd they work it out? There was a modicum of trust between Khrushchev and Kennedy. They had a, a, a hotline. In those days, it was a teletype. And they had ways to communicate where it was secure and they could prevent the press from learning what was going on. Kennedy also had some good advisors, including the former ambassador to the Soviet Union, Llewellyn Thompson, who had just had you know lunch with Khrushchev a month before uh, because he, he just left his post in, in, uh, in Moscow. So he got the, these all together and he said, well, we're going to face them down. And they did. And Khrushchev looked and said, my God, <laughs> I mean, you know, we thought we might get away with this, but this Kennedy... Get this now. This Kennedy considers what we did an existential threat. Now, us, 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 you know, what was a nothing ventured, nothing gained kind of thing. I mean, it's not existential. So, so let's get the hell out of Dodge. And they did. <laughs> okay. Now, there was a side deal uh, where Kennedy said, look, we'll get rid of those missiles that we have in Turkey, but let's keep that quiet for the nonce. And, uh, and several months later, that happened as well. The big thing is, they were contacts. They negotiated. They figured out what was existential threat and what was just a kind of ploy where they get the upper hand. Khrushchev back down because it was not an existential threat to the Soviet Union. Now, what's the comparison? Well, I've talked to you about these 
missile holes that can accommodate the very same kind of range, ballistic missiles, medium range, that that Khrushchev did put in Cuba. They're Romania, they're Poland. You heard what I said about uh, the danger that they go into Crimea. And uh, so uh, what does that give uh, Putin? Five to seven minutes, as we said before. So he said, no, we're not going to tolerate that, you know. And how, how could he prevent it? Well, he couldn't prevent it if Ukraine became a member of NATO. And so he said, look, you promised back in February of 1990 not to move NATO one inch to the east. Now you have doubled it in size. All the new ones are to the east of East Germany. Give me a break. We're not going to tolerate it anymore. And they made some proposals late uh, the year before last in 2021. And the U.S. said, well, we don't, we're not interested. Uh, there's another thing that not many people know that I should add here. Um, finally, uh, Putin uh, and Biden talked on the 7th of December, 2021. So not, not this past year, but the year before. And uh, Biden, as is his want, he said, well, okay, you know, let's, you're really upset about this. You think we're not being receptive. Uh, uh, let's let's put our negotiators to work. Uh, uh, how, how soon could you meet? Okay, that was set for 9 and 10 January in uh, Geneva. So, you know, a month away. All of a sudden, White House gets a call on the 29th of December, uh, Mr. Putin would like to talk to Mr. Biden like now. The White House was flummoxed. Wait a second, we're getting together, our negotiators are getting together in just less than two weeks in Geneva. What was, he'd like to talk to him now. Now to his credit, Biden took the call and on the 30th of December, uh, he said to to Putin, that is Biden did, uh, Washington has no intention of putting offensive strike missiles in Ukraine, period, end quote. There was great rejoicing in Moscow. They played it up big. New Year's Eve was a special celebration. We, we, those negotiations are off to a great start. Man, this is great. Wait till they get together in Geneva. They get together in Geneva. And they asked about it. I said, oh, we don't add that way. You know, and we're not authorized to talk about that. No. So six weeks later, that is the 12th of February, uh, Putin and Biden talked again. And the readout from that one says, that's off the table. The U.S. would not discuss uh, the plan not to put offensive strike missiles in Ukraine. 12th of February. <laughs> so 12 days before the invasion. There were lots of things going on at the same time. Uh, there was an uptick, the UN confirmed this, in shelling of Donetsk and Lugansk, uh, where the mostly uh, Russian stock people live. Um, there were all kinds of signs that uh, the uh, Ukrainian army, fortified by years of training by NATO troops, was about to move on Donetsk and Lugansk. But more important, most important of all, was that Putin talked to President 
Xi of China in early February. And he said, look, here's what's going on. They've killed about 14,000 of Russian speakers in Lugansk and Donetsk, the so-called Donbass. Looks like they're going to move in there with their newly equipped and newly trained army. Uh, uh, Biden has just reneged on a promise to not put offensive strike missiles in, in, in Ukraine. I mean, these guys, you know, I don't trust them anymore. I'm going to have to go in there and clean them out. What do you think? Now, I wasn't there. I wasn't a fly on a wall. But from what eventuated, it's very clear that uh, uh, President Xi of China said, uh, um, you mean after the Winter Olympics are over, right? <laughs> <laughs> Putin said, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. course. Day after the Winter Olympics are over, <clears throat> Putin, or the Russia recognizes Donetsk and Lugansk as independent countries. Two days later, they ask for help. And the next day, the Russians are in there on the 24th of February. Now, this just by way of saying that uh, the notion that Putin got it in his head back in 14 to seize Crimea, you know, hey, woke up one day and said, hey, let's seize Crimea. Or that in February of 2022, uh, last year, he said, hmm, be a good idea to invade Ukraine. In other words, the thought that it was unprovoked, forget about it. It was provoked, okay? Provoked as clear as a bell, but you won't hear that in any mainstream media. Now, I think we ought to, yeah, I'm looking here at the clock, so I think we ought to get ahead now to today. Uh, what's going on? Well, what? What really bothers me, Tommy, is that the U.S. citizens have been given uh, given to believe that the Ukrainians are winning, right? The Ukrainians are really given the Russians a bloody nose over the last couple of months. And I uh, mean, they're going to win. We'll just give them some more arms and stuff. Uh, don't believe it. It ain't so. We're about to see a major, a major Russian move west they mobilized 300,000 troops over the last couple of months they're ready to go they're waiting until the until the the ground freezes hard and i'm told it's one more week they have to wait for that and then they 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 go okay the question is how far they'll go now, their original intent, as claimed, as asserted by Putin, was to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. Uh, demilitarize, that's going pretty well from the Russian perspective because they've, they've killed half the Ukrainian army and wounded another, another part of, of that army. Uh, the denazification that's going to take a little uh, little doing because those Nazis those pro-nazis or proto-nazis are are in in the government big time the Ukrainian government but uh, the Russians decided that they had to move even farther west why well because the U.S. provided Ukraine with something called high Mars mm -hmm. 
Okay, mobility. Mo uh, miss mobile rocket systems. Okay, high mobility artillery rocket. Okay, what's their range? I think the ones they provide had about sixty mile range. So, Foreign Minister Lavrov says, okay. Looks like we'll have to go 60 kilometers or 60 miles uh, to further to the north and the west. And so now Zaporozhye and Kherson are also provinces that have been uh, have been annexed into Russia, Russia proper. Mm. That's big, okay? So where will Russia stop? Well, they can go all the way. I, you know, I don't I, I spent two years as a as a uh, military army intelligence officer okay but that was 100 years ago <laughs> to believe me uh, listen to the the people who know things like colonel uh, mcgregor who talks about this a lot i mean the russians are ready to go the ukrainians have nothing to stop them they're going to go all the way to the Dnieper river which separates uh, you know separates east from west ukraine and the question is will they go farther Will they, will they go and take Odessa? Odessa, beautiful city, uh, largely Russian city. I mean, Russian stock mostly there. Uh, people ask me, well, do you think the Russians will go all the way to the Romanian border and take Moldova? I said, I think they prefer not to. If I were Putin, I wouldn't want to do that if I could make a deal. So the deal that I think Putin is hinting at and this is something you don't see in the press. Uh, back in, let's see, when was it? Yeah, I think it was the end of October 27th, if I'm correct. He had this great big four-hour speech for 40 minutes, then Q&A. Toward the end, it looked like a, well, it looked like a, a placed question, right? Canned question. Uh, he's asked by this uh, journalist, uh, Mr. President Putin, I'm planning to go to visit Odessa, and I'm wondering, um, should I apply for a, a Ukrainian or a Russian visa? <laughs> Pretty <laughs> cute, huh? Pretty cute. So, so Putin, rather batting an eye, rise to the occasion, okay? And he said, oh, Odessa is such a beautiful city. You're lucky going there. He said, you know, um, I have to talk about Odessa because... Odessa could be a, uh, what did he say? Yablaka uh, Razdor? Yablaka is apple. Razdor is uh, apple of conflict. Uh, what's the word? The, the one that launched <laughs> the Trojan War, for God's sake, uh, could be an apple of conflict, or it could be a way of satisfying both sides and negotiating grievances so that bad, worse things don't happen. Hmm. Gene says that, okay? Now, what does that mean to me? That means to me that Putin, even though his, his foreign minister and our secretary of state are not on speaking terms, literally, that he could put that out there like the Russians used to do way back when, like the Russians still do. You put out a little, uh, uh, a little tip and you see if anybody um, salutes, if you put the flag up. Nobody saluted, nobody knows about that offer. So I think uh, I think the Russians probably working through third parties, maybe 
the Israelis or whomever uh, are in contact with our people and get a kind of net net in response to this kind of overture. So my fear is this. My fear is that the Russian juggernaut, I mean, it's very serious, Tommy. They're gonna come, they're gonna come west and probably, I'm guessing, another week or two. And I based mm. this on real experts. Uh, then what's Washington gonna do? Everybody will be shocked out of their minds. I thought the West was I winning. Thought, yeah. I thought the Ukrainians were winning. And as Lindsay was like, just give us some more stuff. Well, even if we say, oh, we give you more stuff, it's not going to be there on time. So my point is simply that uh, this is the this is the time. And even the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, Milley, has suggested, look, this is winter. It is sort of like a quiescent time here. Let's talk. We should talk. Because Milley, does, Milley doesn't want to be in a position of having to rush reinforcements to to prevent Russia from going all the way to the Romanian border, which again, they can do. Now, Milley doesn't want to be involved in a nuclear exchange either. And of course, uh, uh, Putin has made it clear, and this is accurate, that he has the preponderance of strength. Uh, he's got the, what Obama even called the uh, escalatory dominance the russians can escalate or de-escalate and they can do that in a way the the west cannot so will these dumb clucks around biden be smart enough to say hey you know we don't want to have to tell the president uh, early one morning whoops the russians look like they're on their way to uh, to romania Let's see if we can work out some kind of a deal. Were they to say that, I think the Russians would be happy to get together and work this thing out. Because I don't think Putin wants to go all the way. I think he'd be happy to stop at the Dnieper River, a natural boundary. They could do a sort of a demotion <laughs> up that river. And uh, there could be agreements where the rest of Ukraine would be neutral, or at least there'd be a, a zone where HIMARS would not be allowed, and this thing could tie down. Now, until then, uh, we have uh, all these Ukrainians dying. I mean, it's really been awful, especially out there in Bakhmut, where where the Russians have been been winning. Now it looks like they've consolidated their gains. So again, long bottom line, the Russians going to go west. How far west really depends on whether there's some degree of flexibility on the part of the U.S. And my God, um, this is going to be such a punch in the nose that those sophomores advising Biden may even say, well, why don't we drop a mini nuke? You know, and that's what that's what General Milley wants to prevent. He wants to prevent uh, Biden from saying, well, well, well mini nukes. What, what the, oh, yeah, let's try. And uh, because who knows how. How, how Biden would react. So it's kind of a long story. I'm sorry to keep you so long, but uh, no. you could ask me a question or two. No, it's it's. I I I I I fear in all of my military genius, but it seems that the dropping of the atomic bomb and then the subsequent Cold War 
is starting to get far enough in the rearview mirror that there's, and I could be wrong, but there seems to be this shifting of the Overton window of acceptance of, oh, it's just a little tactical nuke. There's no, there's no going back. You don't, you don't start a little forest fire. It, you let it out of the cage, it has its own life and it will not stop until all of the fuel is burned. Mm-hmm. A little tactical nuke here. Well, then we just do a little another one there. Well, they're using their tax, so we got to go bigger. Mm-hmm. The next thing you know, it's, as General LeMay said, a built-in policy of extermination. And it very quickly well, goes to megatons. I mean, not to be too reassuring, <laughs> I think it's unlikely to come to that. Um, I hope. It's really have no reason to use tactical nukes. They can do it all with conventional weaponry, of which they have a lot. Uh, I think that even Biden or even General Milley would be able to dissuade Austin and the others from from trying to turn the tide there with with a nuke. But the new reality is this, and this is lost on most Americans. Uh, There are three real superpowers in the world, US, Russia, and China. Uh, It used to be that there was, you know, so this equilateral triangle and, and there was a lot of maneuvering and we were very successful in the 70s of playing off Russia against China and we actually got some arms control agreements that way and a new Berlin agreement. It was really quite amazing. I was watching this firsthand. The Chinese were afraid and the Russians were afraid that either one would steal a march on them and cultivating good relations with the US. Now it's just the opposite. That equilateral triangle, okay? It's become like an isosceles triangle, if you remember what that is. Yeah, yeah. Ends, right? And the U.S. is on the short end of this triangle. Hmm. It's two against one. And I dare say, if it comes to an open exchange in Europe, I believe that Putin is counting on Xi to come through and stir up some armed exchange in the South China Sea, East China Sea, across from Taiwan. Now, does the U.S. really want to take both of these giants on at the same time? And maybe I'll finish with this. Uh, Putin admitted, again, in this same long interview, 27 October in Valdai, he said, look, uh, you know, I used to think, I used to wonder why when the U.S. is so engaged against us in Ukraine, why they would pick a, a fight with China. And and I thought initially, this is Putin, that there must be some sort of clever thing, a subtle thing I just don't understand. But I've been thinking about it for a long time. And now I've concluded they're just crazy. His word. They're crazy. Doesn't make any sense. But they're doing it. Now, Put yourself in Putin's place. Crazies? You want to deal with people who are crazy and have no real strategic sense and might be advising the president to do stupid things as they have all along? So it's the situation is more tentative, more dangerous than I've seen it since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the problem is that uh, in this set of circumstances, 
Putin sees an existential threat. Okay, mm. explained his missile bases and all that kind of stuff. Okay, Biden is Ukraine an existential threat to the United States? A side project. So, yeah. so you know, it's kind of difficult to compare Putin, the hated black and Satan Putin, with John Kennedy. Yeah. But they're in the same situation. They have an existential threat and they're going to meet it. And in this case, it worked out fine because Khrushchev said, all right, nothing mentioned, nothing yet. All right, yeah. we're, we're, we're just, now yeah. is Biden going to do that? Who knows? I think he probably will. I think, <laughs> I think he will. I don't, I, th I think he will. Uh, to, I, I just, it, it will come to that. I think it, it'll, it'll be some talk and some skiff and they'll be like, look, Ukraine, whatever. It's Ukraine. Well, I think so too. But, uh, you know, it, even if there's only like uh, 15, 20% of a nuclear regime, I got that's, that's 15 really, or 20% too high. That's just really crazy. Now, one thing I would ask you, Tommy, when you Googled me and the Pope, <laughs> did you come up with anything? No, I think I actually got a hit to my podcast with you. <laughs> I got Ray McGovern <laughs> on my podcast. And I was like, well, that doesn't help me. I already know that. I did that. Well, let me let me explain very briefly. Sure. I was asked by a Christian uh, TV network, uh, since I'm a Catholic, they said, hey, you said something about the Pope in one of your interviews. Do uh, you think he should uh, play a role here? And I said, by all means, he should. I mean, yeah. if there's any... Um, any moral authority left in the Vatican, they should put it into play. And so, oh, maybe we interview. So they interviewed me out on my deck. Yeah, I watched it. Minute, I did this little message to uh, uh, Pope Francis in all earnestness. And what I did was I cited his uh, speech before Congress uh, back in 2015, I think it was, where he said, the main problem in the world is the blood-drenched Arms, arms dealers, yep, defense contractors. And all the congressmen got up, yay, and looked in their pocket for the latest envelope from Lockheed yeah. here and the one from Boeing, you know. Some North, Northrop money in the sock, some <laughs> Boeing behind the ear. So I, I, I cited that. I said that, hey, uh, you're, <laughs> you're telling the, you're telling the, you're telling the you're demons holy. that we're going to put out the fire of hell. Your, your holiness, uh, you remember <laughs> what you said? Well, now maybe. You could do something about that. Why don't you send an emissary to Washington? Like Pope John Paul. Yeah. Now, most people forget that Pope John Paul II or whatever it was, he did send, he sent a very prominent cardinal to talk with George Bush three weeks before the attack on, on Iraq. This mm. is in March 2003. Three. So... What happened? Well, a couple of months later, that cardinal spilled the beans and said, you know, I tried to talk to Bush, but now he would do all the talking. So finally I said, look, I want you to listen to me. We don't believe there are weapons of mass destruction because you haven't shown us any evidence of it. We don't believe that there are ties between Iraq and Al-Qaeda. It doesn't make any sense. So would you not do this, please? And Bush said, well, no, no, you, you, you don't get it. You don't understand all this stuff. 
And so he went back to uh, to the Vatican. And of course, the, the war followed in less than three weeks, less than three weeks. So, you know, nothing venture, nothing gain. Send a new guy. Maybe this time. Well, Biden's supposed to be a Catholic, right? Maybe he'll listen. Who knows? It's worth a try. So that was my my one minute in fame. Uh, the whole interview that this fellow gave me uh, will be up on their their network uh, in Germany, mostly uh, in another week or so. Uh, so let me let me say that and also say that I have my own website that my son created and populates, and it's raymcgovern.com. He's made it easily searchable. And my son always says, now, Dad, when you mention this, and don't forget to mention it, always say, if you don't get it, you don't get it. But I'm I'm too modest and too humble to say that. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that now. But it's <laughs> raymcgovern.com. And I always I always put that in the description. It should be right at the top. So if whoever's watching this video on whatever website, just go look at the description. It should be right at the top, raymcgovern.com. Um, but with that, we are right at four o'clock. Mr. McGovern, thank you for your time, sir. You are a, a fascinating guest. You're in a, a walking encyclopedia. And I enjoy it because I get to sit back and get a briefing that most people would pay for. But instead, it's just my podcast. So I, I always welcome. I always cherish it. I look forward to talking to you again. I will email you this episode when it's up. And uh, thank you again, man. You're a brilliant sure. guy. You're a kind soul. And I love having you on here. Thank you so much, Mr. McGovern. 